Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Jonathan, and I'm so thankful to be the host of several Bible conversations, including this one, where we're on part three of a four-part series answering the question, what is my role in the church? If you haven't had the chance to listen to episodes one and two, I really encourage you to pause this one, go back a couple of episodes, and find the first part in this series and start meditating on the question, what is my role in the church? My brother, both in the Lord and in the flesh, David, is with me, and he is the one leading this study from the book of Acts, looking chapter by chapter a lot of times at the people behind the scenes and how they are helping the people who are in the foreground. You know, it's often times when we read the book of Acts, the apostles are at the foreground, the preachers at the foreground, but in the background are servants who are serving the church and utilizing their skills effectively for the Lord. So we've considered 11 roles. We're going to consider some more today, and let's begin. Okay, so we're talking about examples of roles in the church. Um, you've gone through several chapters from chapter 1 through 11, and we're kind of looking at people behind the scenes, right? Like you're not focusing on apostles as much as you are kind of like uh, the nameless ones or people that aren't, um, I guess, in it for a title, you know, uh, works that maybe don't get the spotlight. Maybe just if you'll take a moment, review with us real quick, what was the motivation for this sermon? And how did you come up with these different examples of roles found in the book of Acts? Well, several years ago, we started the process of ordaining elders. And, you know, that's probably one of the most, the more obvious roles that you read of in Scripture uh, especially as far as leadership, but when you're when you're scanning scripture and you're saying, okay, what are some roles that should be found within our congregation? Uh, elders, deacons, elders' wives, deacons' wives, evangelists, kind of come to the top, and and that's kind of what everybody would say uh, when if you ask them, what are some roles that every church should have? And as we were going through that process, you're, we were like, you know, that's pretty exclusive to nominate just a few individuals out of a pretty large congregation, um, are those the only people supposed to be working? And what can everybody else do that doesn't get selected? Um, it feels almost like, you know, you're putting these people into these roles. Well, then the rest of us just sit back and do nothing. And that's not the case at all. And, uh, looking through the book of Acts, you find, well, there are so many people recorded doing so many things. So as you start the process and you continue the process of ordaining these positions, you should also be working with the rest of the congregation and going, okay, well, what can the rest of us do? And if we don't qualify now, um, what can we be doing uh, to be fulfilling scriptural roles that are found in, in the church? And so then as you start looking through the book of Acts, you start finding that almost every single chapter includes a role that maybe many people haven't thought of before. Mm -hmm. um, some of them more obvious than others, and some of them are kind of eye-opening where hopefully people as they read those will go, hey, that's me. 
hey, I can do that. Hey, that's something that I'm I'm naturally skilled at doing or, or that, that fits my personality. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. So maybe, uh, you know, the letdown of not being nominated for one of those roles right now, uh, we see, oh, here's something else that I can actually do and, and something that the congregation needs me to be doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you've had a lot of good feedback from this. You've had churches that have, have asked you to come and preach on this around the country in the past, however long it's been since you wrote the sermon, right? Correct. What yeah. What's that been like to take this message around the country? Well, it's humbling. It's extremely humbling that um, people want to hear more about this. But more important, what makes it humbling is that there's a lot of people out there that want to work and want to help their congregation, their home congregation. They just need some direction. And so as they hear these different roles taught on, it's almost like it's something, um, I don't know if it's necessarily something new, uh, but it's inspiring to them to go, okay, I can, I can get to work. I can help my congregation by doing this. Um, Recently, as much as uh, dad, <laughs> dad spoke on this in at a congregation and he, he called me and said, Hey, you know, I don't think there's any way that we can get you to this congregation to, uh, to preach this sermon. But is there any way that I could give the sermon for you? I was like, yeah, that's perfectly fine. He said, don't worry, I'll, I'll give you credit. I was like, dad, <laughs> it's the book of acts. <laughs> We're all plagiarizing the Bible. Right. Uh, but no, yeah, it, it's it's crazy because it's always been there. So there's really no credit that needs to be given. It's just kind of an awakening like, hey, um, maybe we're, we're shedding light on on these these people and their roles in a way that we haven't in the past. It's always just kind of been stories that we read through on our way to what we felt maybe was some more important portions mm-hmm. of Acts. But Here's the thing. Are you recorded in the Bible for all time? No. Am I recorded? No. And they are. Right. And so that needs to make a stop for a second and recognize that's a big deal. If somebody has been, has had their name written in the Holy Scriptures for 2,000 years, that is worth us stopping and noting and going, okay, why? Why is their name recorded? And what should that mean to me? I love it. I love the inquiring, the way you're thinking. So let me ask this question. Um, These people's names are recorded in the Bible. We're now in chapter 12 of the book of Acts, and what I'm noticing is it's a repeat. In chapter 9, there was a hospitable servant, and now in chapter 12, there's a hospitable servant. Is that diminishing the value, or is it increasing the value? What what do we find in chapter 12 that's different from chapter 9, and how does this role benefit the church so much? Well, I think that chapter 12's example is beautiful, and I, I hope that as people look at it this way, that it will it will help us all to open our eyes to how beautiful that this example of hospitality truly is. Um, I don't think it diminishes it in any way by, by a repeat, because I think that this shows another uh, light uh, that we haven't really thought of yet. Uh, and when he had realized, verse 12 says, when he had realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered together 
and we're praying. So you have all these people that have come together to pray for Peter in what they feel is kind of their their darkest time, and they're all concerned. And what I want us to know is when when something bad happens in our life, when something happens in our congregation, every congregation needs a place to go that they can all be together, that they can be praying, that they can comfort one another. And as as people are hearing this, they're probably thinking of someone in their mind. I know I am. I think of throughout my life, different people's homes that if something bad happened, you know, if there was a major loss in that that congregation or someone was really going, I, I know the one place I would want to go. I could know I know this family is who I want to go and I want to be with. Or or if we're all gonna have a prayer service for this person who just received this terrible diagnosis, so and so's house is who we're going to. Yeah. And you know, when when we stop, so the, the whole point about this this kind of example of hospitality is young people, when you are thinking about what type of home I'm going to have, and you know, we, we often we think about what kind of house we're gonna have. You know, I, I want three bedrooms and two full bathrooms and I want to have a big enough area I can have a study. You know, but maybe our, our thinking should be altered a little bit. Like maybe I need to have an extra bedroom, not just for a game room or whatever, but that I can have a place that if somebody's going through a hard time, they can always know that they can stay in that bedroom. Or as you're transitioning or whatever it is, I always have a bedroom ready for you. I have a big enough, when I, I'm house shopping or, or you're thinking in your head, when I'm looking for a house, I want a big enough living room that's going to be able to host singings, mm. or Bible studies, or if something bad happens and everybody needs to come and hang out at my house because I'm the only house on the block that has electricity and we may have to have services in there, I want a home that is going to be, or, or a house that's going to be ready for that, a yard that's going to be able to host get-togethers that through the years, I have had so many people in my home that when the time comes, people know that my house is and my door is always open. And I think that that's what Mary had here. And that's the kind of hospitality that she was and had been showing to all of these Christians in this area. Yeah, there's a uh, man. I don't really have much to add other than a hearty amen, I guess, because I really value what you said about planning to be hospitable. Um, it's going to take time and, and wisdom. And so the people who are making life decisions about what sort of place they're living in, in making sure that you have the space to host, uh, very helpful if you have it. What about those who don't have the space? Do you have any words of encouragement for people who maybe maybe they're apartment dwellers or maybe they're you know, maybe they're the one crowd, uh, uh, couch surfing, so to speak, but they have the heart for hospitality. Um, can people who don't have property or, you know, own a home, can they partake in this? Absolutely. I, I think that, like you said, it's a mentality. Hospitality, not to be Dr. Seuss here, hospitality um, is um, a mentality. And I can think of, times when Amanda and I were young and, and just getting started, we were apartment dwellers. And I can remember some of our friends being apartment dwellers and and our friends just getting started and, and maybe not having places uh, to host big groups. But, you know, some those are some of the best times in my life that I can remember. I can remember other 
couples, uh, you know, maybe they didn't have a place to fit everyone, but, you know, we can go out to eat and they wanted to take us out to eat. And it was really important for them to be able to share in that way. And uh, I, I can remember growing up being, um, I'll tell you one example, and these things stick with you and they're, they're, there's a reason why they stick with you. I can remember a young couple having all of us, the four of us, over. We Dad was having a, he was holding a meeting in a congregation, and they lived in a little apartment, but they wanted us to, ha- they wanted to have us over. They wanted to have all four of us over, and we went over and we had pancakes, and it was so nice. I mean, their place was small and cozy, but the fact that thirty years later. All of the homes that we've been in and, and been in, and uh, you know had meals that something like that would stick out to me. How cozy and fun and warm and what a good time and good conversation we had with those people. Um, I think it's really important to know that hospitality, again, not to be redundant, is a mentality, and that is I want to share whatever I have, no yeah. matter what that is. No matter what level that that is, I just want to share it mm-hmm. uh, because somebody out there is going to need it. Yeah. That makes me think of the Good Samaritan. I don't remember where I read this. Somebody put down a little, you know, this quips. The, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the thieves mentality was what's yours is mine and I'll take it. The priest and Levites mentality was what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. And the Good Samaritan's mentality was, what's mine is yours, and I'll share it. Right. So I think there's a, some good synergy there between that and, and hospitality in Acts 12. Tell me about um, Acts 13. What do we see in the next chapter? So in Acts 13, 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people urged them to continue this message on the next Sabbath. So what... I kind of just put a title that is truth seekers. And that seems simple, you know. In fact, when I was putting the study, I read through that and didn't include them. But then I thought, you know, it's really important to have people in a congregation. They really kind of drive the teaching. They may not even be teachers themselves, but they're the people that you know if you give a, a topic or you give a sermon that's either controversial, has some depth, um, you know, or, or leaves something un, unanswered. You know, these people are going to come question you. They're going to come ask you about it. They're going to thank you for um, giving them an opportunity to dive in deeper. They kind of drive you and they hold you accountable. And, you know, maybe somebody doesn't have the knowledge or the, and, and I take that back. Not that they don't have the knowledge. Maybe they don't have the ability, maybe because of, stage fright or whatever, to stand in front of people and share the knowledge, uh-huh. they might actually have it. And so, you know, it's nice to have that accountability to know, you know what, I can't just stand up here and preach whatever I want because so-and-so will challenge me mm. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I I can get up and I can give this topic and I can relax knowing that at the end they're going to come and encourage me from what I said, or they're going to show me more that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm jumping the gun. So if there's more to say on this, please uh, maybe pause my question, but I'm, I'm noticing that you've got truth seeker 
And then in the next chapter, chapter 15, you've got a truth validator. And some of the things that you've said about the seeker, you know, it seems similar. So, uh, you know, help me understand what a, what the difference might be as we look at Acts 15. Here's the difference. A truth seeker may show up to the service. They're ready to go. They're excited about truth. They're excited to hear it taught. They're looking forward to what uh, the title on the board. And so when it's presented, you know, they're the, the, the people that analyze things. They're always thinking, always trying to, to understand it in a deeper way. Uh, truth validator can be very similar to that and can also, you know, you can put these two together, can be a truth seeker, but a truth validator is someone that is going to go around to other people and encourage them based on what they just heard. For example, they might say, man, that was a great sermon that brother so-and-so gave. I really like how he brought out this point. I had never thought of it that way. You know, we think about people encouraging the speaker, but we don't often think about people encouraging other members of the congregation with what was just spoken. The opposite of that is someone that, you know, the Lord hates, that sows discord, that walks around and goes, can you believe he taught on that topic? Mm. Believe that, that, you know, who does he think he is saying this? Well, a good speaker and a good congregation needs people, you know, and and even elders need someone in the behind them talking good about them, validating what they just said, because all that does is breed consistency. If you have someone doing the opposite and tearing people down and sowing discord, well, then, you know, they start to question, you know, do I really want to be a part of this congregation? Or do, do I really want to listen to what this guy has to say? But to have someone going around and giving a, you know, literal amens behind the scenes strengthens a congregation. How does uh, Judas and Silas in Acts 15, how do they do that? You know, that this is kind of the citation you have for a truth validator. How do they, who are they validating and what are they validating? Verse 31, and when they read it, they, uh, the letter that had been delivered. So in verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. You know, one of the things that Jesus says, the unpardonable sin, is those that were blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and a lot of people, you know, are confused by that, but really the point is anyone trying to derail the progress of the spread of the gospel through destroying um the ministry of Jesus is really, you know, what he, what he's getting at there. And that would have been a really easy opportunity for Judas and Silas after reading this letter. If there were things in it that they didn't like, things oh, okay. in it that they wanted to change, yeah. anything, as they sit there, that's a, a perfect opportunity for them to glorify themselves mm-hmm. and to, to infuse their own words. But the fact right. that it says that that they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words means I just listened to this letter and I'm going to continue to encourage you. I'm going to continue to strengthen 
and validate everything that we just heard. Right, right. That makes sense. Let me ask you this before we move on. Uh, maybe it's for the truth seeker and the truth validator. Both of these seem like a pretty positive role. Um, is there any space in this role for correction or you know helping a message improve whenever the the message itself is a little bit off track? You know, I think our brethren are pretty good about um, having a love for truth, and sometimes people. Uh, get very concerned when they hear things like truth seeker and truth validator and, and all of the encouragement and, but they're not hearing anything about correction. Maybe that's not your sermon. Maybe that's for a different sermon. But my question is in these roles, is there any room for helping whenever the speaker is a little bit off? Yeah, I think that the part that goes un, un, uh well, that we don't discuss is Someone that's a truth seeker, we already know that about them. We love that about them. We respect it about them, which is why we know that if we get up and we say something that we miss the mark for whatever reason, we know and we trust that they're going to come and they're going to share with us, hey, here's what I think the context may have been. We've been developing a relationship with that person. Right. You know, this isn't the fact checker at the end of the ESPN show that goes back and tells everybody what they missed, you know, with dates and scores. That's not what it is. Notice I didn't call it the fact checker, the true fact checker. Yeah. It's not the person that is just known for being critical. It's a truth seeker. And we know that about them. We know that they diligently want the truth. Yeah. And so when they have to, when the opportunity comes that they, they need to do some type of rebuke or some type of correction, we know that it's not, we don't take it personal because we know that they love the truth and that's where it's coming from. This is going to probably be a very crude example, but it's like when you've got a booger hanging out or your flies down, the one who, who tells you, you know, you, you can't take that personally because they're helping you, even though it's an embarrassment or there's, you know, uh, something about it, it may be unpleasant. We appreciate when somebody may help us with some physical change that we need to make. And that's kind of where I'm thinking with this correction is I'm correcting you or I'm bringing up this idea that maybe it's going to help your teaching because I love you. Um, and that what a different mindset that is. It's a lot healthier for me. I'd like to think I'm okay at taking criticism, but I bet deep down it's hard um, and it's difficult for me to accept it. So hearing you say that the truth seeker is somebody I've already built a relationship with so that when they correct me, I know it's coming from a place of goodness. Uh, that's helpful. So think about how brave that person has to be too. I right. Mean, nobody talks about the person that, that brings up the fact that you have something hanging out of your nose. How many <laughs> other people saw it, but weren't brave enough to say something. Right. Well, how awesome of that person to kind of, you know, wow. Okay. Yeah. Just put yourself aside enough to be able to throw that out there. Yes. True friend indeed. Um, I'm looking at Acts 16 for your next uh, role, and you call it a charismatic influencer. And I doubt you have social media in mind, but that really sounds like something like a TikTok thing. Uh, what do you mean? by that. What does the book of Acts mean by a charismatic influencer? 
So we read, you know, in verse 14 and 15, we are introduced to um, all of the things that Lydia does. She's a dealer of, of purple cloth in the city, and the fact that she's mentioned as a woman is a big deal. It means that she must have had some type of influence, pretty great of an influence. And when she and her household had been baptized, sorry about that. That's all right. In fact, that that was the the audible sound of my question. Why does it? You you said because she's a you know it mentions she's a woman, so that infers that she must have had some influence. Um, I might know what you're talking about, but for the person that is unfamiliar with that, why would this matter? Well, we are getting to a point later in the study, and we'll get to this. And okay. this like this could be like a foreshadowing thing, um, but. Culturally, I mean, we have to remember that everyone didn't have the same rights that we have now, especially here in our country. And mm-hmm. we can read the Bible in a really skewed way and think that everyone thought the way that we think. They live in a country the way that we, that we have the same kind of rights. And But no, and you know, women were often thought of as property. And so when we read uh, during this time that a woman has risen within her community to this level, she must be something special. And she's obviously gone right. through her share of hardships to arrive at that. Um, but the fact that she is an influencer over her community enough to be mentioned, number one, is a big deal. But then the second part, she urged Paul, saying, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Mm-hmm. So she has influence over the people around her, but because of her personality, you know, it's so much more, you know, they don't live around her. They don't see all of her deeds daily. Her personality must have also been charismatic to an extent for them to alter their plans a bit and continue to stay there. And the reason I call it a charismatic influencer is, you know, there are people in my mind that just can talk to anyone. They, you know, they can talk to a brick wall. Right. They, they can talk with so many people and make them feel comfortable, find different connections. They're just an easygoing person. But then there's also people that can do that and they can do it in such a smooth way that people want to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. They want to be around them. They want to learn from them. They just enjoy being in their presence because not only are they friendly, but they're just so smooth, so charismatic. And I think that she had that to an extent. And I think that a congregation needs people. You know, so you, you have one person, maybe it's a truth seeker, and they really have come to the, the nuts and bolts of the gospel and understanding the Bible in a really good way. They just can't quite get it across to somebody. And they need, you know, be able to put their arm around a charismatic influencer and be like, hey, can you help me with this study? Can you help me with this conversation with this person? And, you know, the, the charismatic influencer be able to cross the bridge in a way that, that maybe the truth seeker was just really struggling. I'm thinking about if people are listening to this, um, and it makes a lot of sense, this charismatic influencer. I'm thinking of specific individuals um, in my life who I know that are just really naturally gifted at this, making people feel comfortable, making them feel heard, et cetera. 
maybe somebody out there is a shy guy or a shy gal, and they think, well, that's a job for some extrovert. That's not a job for me. I'm not really um, a people person. Uh, have you given any thought about how introverts can also be influential in their influence and how they make people feel comfortable? Yes. You know, well, there's two sides to that thought. And I think that that's a very valid thought. The first and most important, as we look at all of these roles, is there's no passage that says that we all have to fulfill every one of these. There's not one that says, you know, in order to be a true Christian, in order to be a true uh, disciple, you need to have every skill that every one of these people have. Mm, Because that's, you know, it's obvious to go that we don't. God designed some people this way and designed some people a different way. And for me to be upset would be for me to not understand God's design of me. Sure. He may not want me to to do this. He may not, you know, I may not have these skills to really do this well. And I can't get upset about it. What I need to go is, okay, which one of these roles really describes the skills that I do have if I don't have this one all that much? Which one do I have and how do I how do I develop that? There's a lot of wisdom and maturity in that too, right? Like always wanting to be maybe something else or uh, feeling like you've got to be everything. Um, man, that can really wear you down. It, But the wisdom to know I don't have to be all of these roles, delegating it to others, I feel like it's pretty important. Do you agree? Absolutely. Well, you know, we talked about it at the beginning when we, we said the, um, let's look at it here, the far-sighted leader in chapter 7 when they laid their coats down <coughs> in front of Paul in front of, front of Saul to not be so focused on what we want to do someday that we miss the opportunity of what we should be doing now mm-hmm. and that fits with exactly what you're talking about with this question that we shouldn't be going I hope someday to be more outgoing I'm going to work to someday be this and be this type of a role, and miss out on years of good opportunities of sharing who we actually are right now. Right. Man, that's that's really good stuff. Because I can remember feeling that way as a teen. And a lot of the teens that I work with, uh, I think, have a similar mindset. Whenever I grow up, and they're missing out on great opportunities with their youth and vigor. Um, You've got another one in Acts 16, another role. Uh, so we've got Lydia, who is this charismatic influencer, but what else do we see in that chapter, or who else, rather, do we see in that chapter, and, and how, how, how does this role help the church? Well, this is one of the more famous examples as you read through the book of Acts. It's a really kind of a wild story of the uh, Philippian jailer. And so what we have happen is, you know, the story, if you read this in Acts 16, when in verse 32, when Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and to everyone in his house, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And without delay, he and all his household were baptized. Then he brought them into his home and set a meal before them. So he and all his household rejoiced 
that they had come to believe in God. What role does this man hold? If you ask anybody, they're going to say, well, none. (laughs) He can't speak yet. He doesn't really understand how the church works. All he has to offer is what was given in verse 34. His household rejoiced that they had come to believe in God. On that Sunday morning, when that group of believers came together, he walks in the door and all he has is the joy that he's come to know God. Mm. That's really what I call them is that the people that we say, I'm just happy to be here. And we put that just happy to be here. Like that's not a big deal. You're just happy to a spreader of joy. This might be one of, if not the most important roles within all of these, because this person is naturally a joyful person. There's someone that's looking for a hug. They're looking for a handshake. They're always a smile when you walk in and you know, you know, on a, a difficult Wednesday evening or Sunday that whatever you've had going on, you're going to see this person and they're going to lift up everyone around them. And what, what a sad statement to say, I just am happy to be here. No, we need more people that are just happy to be here because the more joy that we have, the more of someone like that that we have, the more infectious that that becomes to the people around them. And we see the fuel that they become to every other role. Man, that's great. I'm thinking about people at my home congregation, um, young and old, that fill that role. How do you improve at it, you know, without it coming off fake or, you know, insincere? Is there a way to hone this skill sincerely? Hey, you're the counselor here. (laughs) (laughs) I teach music. You teach the mind. Well, I'm I'm throwing softballs at you, but yes, there are obviously ways to cognitively improve, but just didn't know if you wanted to add your two cents on it. Well, I would not call myself a naturally joyful person. It is something I am definitely working on, and I am so envious. Maybe of all the other roles on here, I'm more envious um, of people that just naturally have got that. I, I feel so inspired when I walk in uh, a few minutes before service starts and you see these people walking around the congregation. They're shaking hands. They've got a huge smile on their face. They're looking intently at people as they tell them about their day. And I'm like, man, how do you get to a point where you just care that much about people? I don't know. I don't know what the, what the answers are, but I know that some people do it and it's not easy. Yeah. So they just do it. They just set their, their you know, I'm not going to come in and not going to just sit down today. I'm going to get around to everybody. I'm going to talk to everyone and I'm just going to smile while I'm doing it. And maybe at some point, even though it's difficult, it will start becoming natural. Yeah. You'll never, I, I told this to a young person one time who said uh, they felt like nobody heard them or they felt as though they could just kind of uh, slide between the cracks, so to speak. And there were things that could be worked on to make them feel more welcome. I didn't want to put every single ounce of pressure on the young person. But my question to them was, what have you done to meet people at church? And how are you going about learning their names and talking to them about? 
And they were very perplexed by that as though, you know, it wasn't their responsibility to do that. And I think you're actually on target that just by practicing meeting people, you could develop the skill and it, it wouldn't, you know, take more than shaking hands and trying to hug someone after church on a Sunday or Wednesday. Tell me about, uh, if we're moving into chapter 17, um, let me go ahead and, you know, for our listeners, review. There's a lot. There's too many probably for me to review all of them, but let me review the ones that we've been talking about in this recording. So in chapter 12, you've talked about hospitable servant. Chapter 13 is a truth seeker. Chapter 15 is a truth validator. Chapter 16 had a charismatic influencer and a spreader of joy. And now here we are in chapter 17. You've got something written down called righteous community leader. Um, What's that about? Oh, you're going to have to wait till next time. If you want to find out about the righteous community leader, you need to come back. We are in a very, very encouraging series. I hope that you are as encouraged as I am about the question, what is my role in the church? Sometimes the question gets answered for those who desire to preach or to be elders or other roles that maybe have a biblical title. But what about those that don't? And in fact, many times in churches, there are so many roles that maybe aren't seen or heard or talked about as much as they should be. And I hope this series of conversations with David is helpful to you. It certainly has been for me. If you haven't already, I really want you to subscribe to the podcast. And I really want you to uh, get this automatic download so that next time that the episode comes out, which typically is on Monday morning, Central Standard Time, uh, I want you to have that ping on your phone so that you can jump straight into the next lesson whenever it's ready. So if you haven't already done it, subscribe to the podcast. And if you're willing and you love it, leave a five-star review. Those are helpful for me and for the analytics. So uh, check out any other resource at www.pureandsimplebible.com. And always remember, God loves you very much. And I do too. We're willing. See you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, his